We're in the imprecatory psalms, and we come to one of the major imprecatory psalms. There's major and minor, I guess, and uh, this is one of those that's considered uh, one of the, the major ones, and it is a messianic psalm also, meaning that it's a psalm that is prophetic in that it describes or testifies of the coming Messiah. Remember the psalms, most of them were written about a thousand years before the Messiah came. And so you come to this Psalm 69, and we're not going to do the whole Psalm tonight. We're just going to do a part one, and we're going to look at that verse or that, uh, in my outline here, the, the deliverance aspect. And it's an interesting Psalm. Uh, verses 1 to 18 is summed up in the words, save me. And sometimes that's all you can get out when you're in real trouble, right? And the waves are crashing down upon you and you're sinking. I often think of that with Peter as he walked out of the boat and he's on those waves. And as he sees the waves are contrary, the storm has got him, uh, he begins to sink and he gets out the words, save me. And I guess in the Greek, it's just one word, save. Probably that's the rest of it. The rest are just bubbles coming up or would have been had Jesus not saved him in that. And there are several instances in scripture where is this call for deliverance or deliver me save me and that's how the psalm starts off uh, and we're going to look at that tonight um, in this idea of deliverance and point one under this section would be deliverance for his own sake or the psalmist's sake or my sake you could say we're asking for deliverance for me all right and that's important but there's other ways or other reasons why we are uh, asking for deliverance and we're going to begin we're going to read the first five verses and then go from there Psalm 69, verse 1 says, Save me, O God, for the waters have come up to my neck. I sink in deep mire where there is no standing. I have come into deep waters where the floods overflow me. I am weary with my crying. My throat is dry. My eyes fail while I wait for my God. Those who hate me without a cause are more than the hairs of my head, They are mighty who would destroy me, being my enemies wrongfully. Though I have stolen nothing, I still must restore it. O God, you know my foolishness and my sins are not hidden from you. We read in this psalm, uh, as he begins, the psalmist here writes of a deliverance and he calls for that deliverance. And some have attributed this, this is a, a psalm of David, however, The last part of this psalm, which we didn't read tonight, but verses, I think, 30 to 36 in that range, actually talk about the rebuilding of the city and a time where God would restore and bring back the people. And they have pointed out, commentaries have pointed out, or commentators have pointed out that uh, David, during his time when he was reigning, nowhere did he have to rebuild a city. Uh, nowhere were the Jews taken captive. And so some think that actually this was written by David and then later added to by probably Jeremiah. And actually the Jews held their psalms as sort of a living volume. And there were other psalms that indicate that most likely there were additions added to them uh, later on by other prophets. Uh, today they aren't being added on to. But I think again showing the relevance of the psalms that they are for all times, aren't they? And uh, I think of that because these are, these are times where uh, certainly there are needs for deliverance in the world that we live in. And it seems like, just like the psalmist writes, 
that the world is just kind of flooding us right now, right? I mean, sin and everything. It seems like there's just a surge of that. Uh, and, and I've seen it even in the last few years. It just has taken a real strong turn in a bad direction. And yet, God is still God. And we're reminded um, that this is a messianic psalm. And most likely, as I said, it uh, doesn't matter really who wrote it as far as David or maybe Jeremiah for some of it. Uh, what is read of is a parts of the time of Hezekiah, it seems like, later on. And yet we find here it's really about the now because every single one of us needs deliverance and we need salvation, don't we? Well, he asks for deliverance for his own sake, and that's that verses 1 to 5. And that, by the way, is um, he begins with a metaphor of a drowning man. And you picture the trouble that has come up against him is, is just enveloped him from all sides. And it's just like drowning in water. Um, that's not unique to just this psalm. There are several psalms that, that talk about trouble as such, like it overwhelms us. And Psalm 18, another song of David, it says here in verse 4, The pangs of death surrounded me. And the floods of ungodliness made me afraid. The sorrows of Sheol, or I think in the Old English it's translated hell. Sheol is a reference to the abode of the dead in Hebrew. Um, It's equivalent to the Greek word Hades. And it often refers to the grave directly. And that's really what, uh, in, in some of the newer translations, they didn't interpret the word. They just brought the word in directly from Hebrew. And he says, the sorrows of Sheol surround me. The snares of death confronted me. And then he says, in my distress, I called upon the Lord and cried out to my God. He heard my voice from his temple and my cry came before him even to his ears. And uh, yeah, Judy Dick just texted and said they're getting hail. <laughs> so there we go. So that is... Uh, possible down that way i don't mean to interrupt but uh that just came in and uh, said they're getting hail i had sent a little uh, heads up to them on that but uh we have those times of distress don't we and those times where uh our cry goes out it feels like the world has enveloped us and it feels like sin is upon us and sometimes it's not not necessarily our own sin um in this case david as he writes and he's writing not only of himself but who was a sinner but he's writing prophetic of messiah although he was not a sinner jesus was not a sinner he was numbered with transgressors right and we'll talk about that in a moment you see that call for deliverance uh another one that i find like just reading through the psalms the amount of times that the psalmist likens himself or his situation to being surrounded by the enemy and that's why this psalm, which is an imprecatory psalm, uh, it, it is, is asking for God to deliver and to bring judgment upon the enemy, which is around them. In Psalm 23, that most probably familiar psalm for most, uh, you have here in verse 5, You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You know it, my head with oil, my cup runs over. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. And I think of that. Here's a picture of a sheep that's been um, surrounded by the enemy, right? And here the shepherd takes that sheep 
and he prepares a table for that sheep in the presence of the enemies. I had a guy once who came to MBBI years ago and he preached on this psalm from the perspective of a sheep and he had actually spent time in the Holy Land as a shepherd or with a shepherd not as a shepherd and he had walked around and followed this shepherd and he had written a book on the commentary on Psalm 23 and a lot of his illustrations came out of that time and it's interesting he said sheep are funny creatures although we think them kind of innocent you know and all of that sometimes sheep can be mean how about that huh who'd have known that right unless you have probably if you have sheep you know that but sheep can actually gang up on another sheep all right and and they can bully them and they will actually ostracize them you know push them away from the flock sometimes and a good shepherd will will see that and will go and take the sheep and bring him into his close proximity and then the other sheep won't come near the shepherd to bully that sheep and often as the shepherd would prepare his meal and he would have the sheep there with him and the sheep would would be grazing on the best ground right around where he was and the other sheep wouldn't bother that sheep and i thought of that that's just like the lord isn't it he is the one who is there whether it be the wolves on the outside that are trying to to steal and to kill or maybe sometimes people that are closer even in the household of uh, what david had people in his own household right or people in his own uh, lineage in his family in the house of israel that were well hounding him weren't they and there were those times and yet he is the one that would write from a perspective of a shepherd and as he says you prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies wow and dwelling in the house of the lord forever that's what we want psalm 30 verse 1 i will extol you O lord for you have lifted me up and have not let my foes rejoice over me i love that now i can just say that there were many times and they weren't short times that david found himself overwhelmed by his enemies sometimes they were months and years where david was hounded hiding in the cave and he was doing all kinds of things and yet god would lift him up and it reminds us he has lifted up christ hasn't he out of the out of the whole sea of humanity jesus is lifted up as the the one true son of god but son of man right and we have victory through him psalm 32 verse 6 for this cause everyone who is godly shall pray to you in a time when you may be found surely in a flood of great waters they shall not come near him wow al was teaching this week at camp and he taught on noah and al i i tell you and i'll say it publicly that was a blessing it was a blessing to see you and hear you teach. And it was a blessing to have uh, those kids right on the edge of their seats listening. And to hear that familiar story of Noah and his ark. And how God led uh, Noah and his family into the ark. And the sad thing, and I could see it on the kids' faces when you talked about the people who didn't get in the ark. For all those years, Noah warned and he warned and he warned that it's going to rain, there's going to be a great flood. Why? Because God told him so. God prepared a means for salvation for all those people. And when the door was opened on the ark, it, was, it remained open for how many days again? Seven days. When he said that, I said, wow, isn't God good? 
Little details like that are not overlooked, by the way. When God opened the door, he left another seven days of that door being opened, just in case people at the last minute would be saved. But then the door shut. And that rain began to fall, and the ark began to float, and the people outside the ark began to die. But those in the ark were saved. What a, what a verse out of Psalm 32 that says, For this cause everyone who is godly shall pray to you in a time when they may, you may be found. Thank the Lord for Noah, right? And for those in Noah's family who found God and knew who he was, and they found safety in that and the great flood that took place there. Psalm 42, verse 7, Deep calls unto deep at the noise of your waterfalls. All your waves are billows. All your waves and billows have gone over me. And here's again a metaphoric picture of the waves of trouble that come. And they wash over us in that. Psalm 88, verse 7. Your wrath lies heavy upon me and you have afflicted me with all your waves. Picture of God's judgment and God's discipline and how that happens. And again, a picture of the way the Lord works that. In verse 17 of that same chapter, they came around me all day long like water. They engulfed me all together. Um, I think of the story of Jonah, right? There's Jonah, and he's in a great storm, and then he ends up in the ocean, and then he ends up in a great fish, doesn't he? (laughs) At the bottom. And it talks about that in Jonah, where the weeds wrapped around his head. He's totally engulfed. The pangs of death surrounded him and all that. Later, Jesus would use that same illustration from the Bible and validate the story of Jonah when he said, even as no sign will be given except the sign of the prophet Jonah, right, who was three days and three nights in the belly of the whale. And then what happened after that? He was spat up on dry ground, right? He was resurrected and I often think that ends, lends credibility to the thought that Jonah didn't actually survive or, or that when he was swallowed by the great fish, the miracle wasn't that he was kept alive for three days, but that he was dead. And the testimony is sort of out of order of the account, but it's a, it's a further explanation when you get into Jonah 2 and it talks about the weeds wrapping around his head and all that. He's dying and he prays a prayer of deliverance and three days later he's spit up alive. And Jesus uses that analogy. And I would say Jesus was not alive in the grave. He was dead. And three days later he was resurrected. I think Jonah was a a type of that. Whether or not he actually lived or died, it doesn't really matter, Jonah, as far as that. Uh, But I think that it was a miracle that God raised up a prophet from the bottom of the ocean. You think about that. And it's a great miracle that God would raise up Jesus Christ, the Son of God, and he would come back from death he himself raising himself and the father raising him and the spirit raising him psalm 130 verse 1 out of the depths i have cried to you O lord lord hear my voice let your ears be attentive to the voice of my supplications wow god is so good psalm 69 verse 3 david says this i am weary with my crying, my throat is dry, my eyes fail while I wait for God. And I think of that because here, it just basically it's saying this, that I am weary with my crying. And again, this is a prophetic psalm that also speaks of Messiah. 
And when you look at this, this psalm, uh, by the way, this is one of the most quoted psalms in the New Testament. Uh, I think it's Psalm 22 and Psalm, let me just look up here in my notes that I had in, in these different, uh, this different section. Psalm, I've lost it now where I had it earlier, but it's one of the most quoted Psalms. Yeah, Psalm 22 and Psalm 110, and this is the third most quoted Psalm in the New Testament, and so a very important one, and Jesus actually uh, quotes it, but it points to Jesus, just like Psalm 22 and Psalm 110 do. But Psalm 22 speaks of the crucifixion of Christ. And it doesn't take a great imagination to read that and to put that together with the gospel account of the crucifixion of Christ. It doesn't take a great imagination to also realize what the Savior went through when he was being suffering. He was suffering for us and he was being crucified. I am weary with my crying. What did Jesus do? Just before he was betrayed, he's in the Garden of Gethsemane. The word Gethsemane is the place of the olive press, right? The very place where olives were taken and they were squeezed is where Jesus was squeezed by the heaviness of the uh, impending death that was about to take place and the suffering that would go. And as it's described, his blood was, as it were, great drops of blood, His sweat, excuse me, was as great drops of blood. Think about that. He was pressed so hard that he sweat blood. I am weary with my crying. And that was just the beginning of his suffering. He would go to the cross and before that he would be chastised and he would be bruised and beaten. He would be, uh, as Isaiah says, his face was marred beyond recognition of a man. When he hung there on the cross, and so much of it is sterilized in our, in our art depictions and our movies and other things, when they try to picture for us a crucifixion, and I don't think we really could even wrap our minds around what Jesus did for us and what he must have looked like on that cross when people couldn't have recognized who he was. He was beaten so badly. That's before he was crucified. My eyes fail while I wait. For my God. And look, it says, My throat is dry. Before that, my throat is dry. Imagine losing a lot of blood. One of the things that happens when you lose blood, you lose the liquid volume of your body, which is mostly liquid, right? And you become very thirsty as you die from blood loss. And Jesus would have been very thirsty. That's why one of the things they did for Jesus is they gave him a sponge, remember, on a reed. And there, they held it there, and it was vinegar mixed with gall, and he didn't drink of it. But the cup that he had to drink was figurative, wasn't it? But his throat being dry. You imagine the agony that his voice would have had to make when he was being crucified. The, uh, the Jesus film, which came out in 1978, I think it was, it's still one of the more popular Movies depicting the life of Christ as according to the, the Gospel of Luke. That's what it's based upon. And I think of the scene in, um, in the crucifixion account there. And again, it, it's probably cleaned up for our perspective. But they have the, the actor, the character who plays Jesus. And they take him, the Roman soldiers take him, and they throw him down on the cross members, and they are crucifying. And before they crucify him, you can hear the screams of the men on either side of him as they're being crucified. And then the camera picture is of a Roman 
a soldier holding a rusty Roman nail, sort of rusty, you know, just a square nail, big spike, and he begins to raise the hammer onto the wrists of Jesus. And the camera pans away from that, and all you hear is his agony, his yell, his scream. Imagine the hoarseness that would have been in his voice after that when you scream out in total pain. Excruciating pain. My eyes fail while I wait for my God. Wow. Psalm 69, verse 4. Those who hate me without a cause are more than the hairs of my head. I might say that I don't have a lot of enemies if it was me. But in reality, David here is writing that the enemies are so many that he can't even number them. Those who surrounded Jesus at his crucifixion were numerous. There were the Romans. There were those of his own uh, countrymen, the Jews, the religious Jews who hated him. They are mighty who would destroy me. There were mighty people in David's day that wanted him to kill. Saul did, right? Saul was king. When Jesus was on the cross, there were mighty people that could have intervened. People like Pontius Pilate and others. And certainly the emperor himself had he known about it. And yet, they didn't. They sought his life. Look what it says. Being my enemies wrongfully. It's one thing to have an enemy... And that enemy has come as a result of you being their enemy and doing something to make them your enemy. It's another thing when you're, you're not their enemy, and yet they've made you the enemy. And that so often is the case. You know, that is exactly what the world and its system does when it's opposed to God. It, it, it is opposed to God, right? Why do the nations rage and the, or the heathen rage and the people imagine a vain thing, the psalmist wrote, right? Why? Well, because they do. And that's a wrong attitude, and yet they go after God. And by the way, God's followers often take the brunt of that, don't they? David realized that it was because they hated God that they hated him. Jesus spoke of that as well. Look what it says. Though I have stolen nothing, I still must restore it. There's no greater injustice than having to pay for something that you didn't steal as restitution for something. Think about that. He says, oh God, you know my foolishness and my sins are not hidden from you. Now the psalmist is writing of himself here, but remember that Jesus himself was numbered with transgressors. He died the death of a sinner. That's what the crucifixion was all about. It was the Roman invention to give to the hardest of criminals. And by the way, a Roman citizen couldn't be crucified. Um, that, was, that was one of the things that they, they prohibited. So that's how bad it was. That's why tradition says the Apostle Paul, by the way, who had Roman citizenship, he wasn't crucified, he was beheaded in somewhat a more speedily fashion of death. And yet, Peter, who was not a Roman citizen, as far as we know, was crucified, wasn't he? So was Andrew and others as well, and countless Christians. Reminds us, though, that Jesus bore our sins. 
Isaiah 53. <clears throat> Another prophetic messianic passage, which again is, is so clear. I, I to this day don't know how people can read through Isaiah and not connect it with the suffering Messiah. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement for our peace was upon him, and by his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. You know, there's not one sin Jesus didn't take at the cross, and there's not one sin that has ever been committed that God doesn't know about. Verse 9 of that same passage. And they made his grave with the wicked. Think about that. The very act of death is a sign that you're a sinner. Okay. For the wages of sin is death. And the very fact that God the Son died means that he identified with sinners. But with the rich at his death. And that's true. It was Joseph, Joseph of Arimathea, right? Who ended up taking the body or having the body of Jesus taken and buried in a tomb that had been prepared for probably for him himself. Joseph, a rich man. Because he had done no violence, nor was any deceit in his mouth. By the way, you'll never find a violent Jesus. Oh, that doesn't mean he was weak. I think he was the strongest man that ever lived. But he wasn't a violent man. By the way, there's a difference between, I was thinking about this in the context of, um, sometimes people say, well, you know, we talk about like Islam, for example. It's a, in its history, it's a violent religion. All right? Thankfully, not all Muslims are violent, and many would oppose that. But if you want to go back to the founding of the founder of Islam, Muhammad, he was a violent man. And if you want to be more like Muhammad, you'll be more like that. When a Christian acts violent in a way that is wrong, and I'm saying like, you know, in, they, they murder somebody, they, they do violence, they beat somebody when they shouldn't, they do that, or they take a sword and they forcibly convert people, those kind of things, that happened in history. They didn't really convert anybody doing that. They just made more sinners like themselves. When they do that, they do that in violation of their founder. Because there was no violence found in Christ. Nor was any deceit in his mouth. Verse 12. Therefore I will divide him a portion with the great. And he shall divide the spoil with the strong. He is strong. (laughs) Because he poured out his soul unto death. And he was numbered with the transgressors. And he bore the sin of many. And made intercession for the transgressors. Oh praise God for the Messiah. By the way, uh, Jesus, in his upper room discourse in John's gospel, um, John chapter 15, he quotes this psalm at the end of this section. John chapter 15, Jesus says, Remember the word that I said to you, A servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will keep yours also. But all these things they will do to you for my name's sake, because they do not know him who sent me. 
If I had not come and spoken to them, they would have no sin. But now they have no excuse for their sin. He who hates me hates my father also. If I had not done among them the works which no one else did, they would have no sin. But now they have seen and also hated both me and my father. But this happened that the word might be fulfilled which is written in their law. They hated me without a cause. He's quoting from Psalm 69. Well, there's deliverance for, the the psalmist says deliverance or deliver me for his own sake, but also deliverance for the Lord's sake. And this is verses 6 to 12. And again, we'll just go down through these. Um, One of the reasons we should be praying for deliverance is for the Lord's sake, not just our own. And David uh, understood that he was being lied about, but ultimately when they lied about him, they were blaspheming against the Lord himself. And that's a problem, isn't it? In this uh, psalm, by the way, uh, reproach is used six times, and that's scorn or insults. And pictures also for us, the Messiah bore our bore the the insults and scorn of man when he was going to the cross and when he was at the cross verse 6 he says let not those who wait for you O lord god of hosts be ashamed because of me let not those who seek you be confounded because of me O god of israel because for your sake i have borne reproach shame has covered my face I have become a stranger to my brothers and an alien to my mother's children because zeal for your house has eaten me up and the reproaches of those who reproach you have fallen on me. Again, this is messianic verse or passage. And that's exactly what Jesus also bore. He was estranged from those that he came to save. The Bible says he came unto his own, his own received him not. But as many as received him, to them gave he the power to become the sons of God or the children of God. There was a whole group that rejected him. Some of those that called out Hosanna, Hosanna as he was coming into Jerusalem would later be probably part of that crowd that said crucify him, crucify him. He'd become estranged, become an alien. The word alien meaning someone who is a stranger as a foreigner in a land that is not their own. And here, Jesus, who is the creator of all things and sustainer of all things, was a foreigner in his own world that he created. And he was a foreigner among his people. In John chapter 2, we have the account of Jesus on the Passover and the first cleansing of the temple. There are two times he does this. At the beginning of his ministry and at the end of his ministry. John chapter 2 verse 13. Now the Passover of the Jews was at hand. And Jesus went up to Jerusalem. And he found in the temple those who sold oxen and sheep and doves and the money changers doing business. And when he had made a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and the oxen. And poured out the changers of money and overturned the tables Now, mind you, I said Jesus was a violent man, and he wasn't violent even in this. He took a whip, and he he got the animals going, and he drove everybody out. He didn't beat people or anything like that, but he got them moving. 
And he said to those who sold doves, Take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of merchandise. By the way, he didn't let the doves go. <laughs> that would have been a great loss for those people that owned them. Again, you see gentleness and even his discipline that he had. It was metered. He says, take them. And then his disciples remembered that it was written, Zeal for your house has eaten me up. Psalm 69, fulfilled right there in that. And you see that over and over and over again where Jesus had been alienated, blasphemed against. He drives people out of his temple. And by the way, David wasn't writing of himself. David hadn't yet built a temple or a house for God. He had been the one that God would use to collect the materials, but it would be Solomon, David's son, that would do that. So it's clear David is prophesying of another. And you have a couple other things here. Um, uh, Isaiah 56, verse 7. Zeal for the Lord here. Even them I will bring to my holy mountain and make them joyful in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and their sacrifices will be accepted on my altar. For my house shall be called a house of prayer for all nations. I love that. Listen, that's a missionary verse right there. And it's the heart of God. He's a missionary God. He wants all people everywhere to come to him and to make his house a house of prayer. And that's a wonderful thing, isn't it? Jeremiah chapter 7 verse 11 has this house which is called by my name become a den of thieves in your eyes behold I even I have seen it says the Lord wow all that fulfilled from Psalm 69 and later in these these times as well and then lastly it's based a deliverance based on the character of God on the character of God verses 13 to 18, and I won't take a lot of time to comment on these, but look what it says here. But as for me, my prayer is to you, O Lord, in the acceptable time, O God, in the multitude of your mercy, hear me in the truth of your salvation. Wow. (laughs) That, That whole text right there is just filled with all kinds of wonderful thoughts. My prayer is to you, O Lord, in the acceptable time. Oh God, in the multitude of your mercy. How much mercy does God have? It's immeasurable. His mercy is new every morning, as Lamentation says, right? And what that verse means is every morning it's just as new as it was the morning before. It never runs out. Hear me in the truth of your salvation. There's that word salvation. The Hebrew word is Yeshua. It is the very name that Jesus would take, Yeshua. That's his Hebrew name, salvation. Hear me in the truth of your Yeshua. And deliver me out of the mire, and let me not sink. Let me be delivered from those who hate me, and out of the deep waters. Let not the flood water overflow me, nor let the deep swallow me up, and let not the pit shut its mouth on me. Hear me, O Lord, for your loving kindness is good. Turn to me according to the multitude of your tender mercies. And do not hide your face from your servant, for I am in trouble. 
Boy, David gets to it. I'm in trouble. Hear me speedily. Draw near to my soul and redeem it. Deliver me because of my enemies. What a great truth that he has here in that. And we're reminded that's, uh, that's exactly what the Lord wanted. And he, by the way, wanted to do that to his people. And uh, back when Moses came down from the mount, you remember in uh, Exodus chapter 34, Now the Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. And the Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord God, merciful and gracious, long-suffering and abounding in goodness and truth, keeping mercy for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, by no means clearing the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children and the children's children, to the third and the fourth generation. And it just reminds us again that if you've received mercy from the Lord, if you have been forgiven, He forgives you forever. If you aren't, that sin continues even generationally. It can continue the consequences of it and the next generation will be just as bad. But there's a way to break that cycle and it's to come to the Lord for forgiveness. David says, deliver me, redeem me, save me right forgive me says so moses made haste and bowed his head toward the earth and worshiped and then he said if now i have found grace in your sight o lord let my uh, let my lord i pray go among us even though we are stiff-necked people and pardon our iniquity and our sin and take us as your inheritance see david asks for the Lord's sake and the character of God and what he's like, he says, deliver me for those reasons too. I think those are great reasons. Let's pray. Lord, again, we're thankful for this psalm, thankful for the cry of deliverance and the God that answers. And even now, Lord, in this world around us, we pray, Lord, for deliverance, that many would come to saving faith in Christ. They would see his mercy, experience it firsthand. And Lord, help us to live in the light of that with hope. Enjoy. In Jesus' name, amen.